Hi, I'm Gary David. And I'm Adam Gamwell. Welcome to Experience by Design, the podcast where we explore experience designs of all kinds. Now, medicine, like it seems everything else, is undergoing an experiential transformation. Now, the movement towards redefining healthcare in terms of the patient experience is not necessarily new, but you know, we can think it dates back to over a decade, and we can see interesting early shifts towards this thing called patient experience. What does it mean to take care of the patient and think about what their experience of being in a hospital is like? And the idea that hospitals really should be focusing on what it is like to be in there as a patient. You might be scared, you could be hurt, you could be lonely. Um, you're not sure if you understand the doctor's orders and, and things like that. So we can even point to this first issue of the idea of the patient experience in a journal that was published in 2014 as evidence that though it's nascent, it has actually been well-established. It's established, but for sure it's evolving, changing all the time as the conditions of practicing medicine are changing as well. And not only our understanding of patient experience is evolving, but the broadening out of that experience into what we can call the provider experience or the employee experience. As we have turned our attention to frontline heroes in healthcare today, the question arises, to what extent does an emphasis on patient experience potentially negatively impact that provider experience, whether it be doctors, nurses, or anybody else associated with providing care to patients. To explore this question of healthcare experience and that intersection of patient and provider experience, we welcome Dr. Justin Bright to the Experience by Design Studios. Justin is an actual real doctor, unlike Adam and me, who are moderately fake doctors, in that we can't provide any medical advice or help anybody who's in dire need. He's an ER doctor at Henry Ford Health System in Detroit, which is my hometown. So it was really, really great to speak to somebody who is from the Detroit area. I heard Justin speak at a patient experience conference, which of course happened online as everything is right now. And after I heard him speak, I knew he had to be on experience by design because of the way he brings this intersection of provider and patient experience together. Along with being a doctor providing care in an emergency room, he's also the assistant medical director for patient experience at Henry Ford Emergency Medicine. And interestingly enough, he's the co-chair of the Physicians Council at the Burrell Institute. And for those who don't know, the Burrell Institute is an institute devoted to patient experience. Among the many things we talk about during this episode, we talk about understanding the provider perspectives in delivering patient experience and why doctors may not be thrilled with this idea of patient experience. We compare famous television doctors like Doc Martin versus Doc McStuffins, for those of you who have kids and are familiar with the cartoon, as well as how do we innovate in regulated spaces? How do you fail fast in medicine when it seems that failure is not an option? And how do you try new things when trying new things can potentially cause real damage? We also explore whether patients are customers or in what ways are they customers and in what ways aren't they customers. And we also explore what is it like to practice ER medicine in the middle of, of, a, of a pandemic when practicing ER medicine in the middle of Detroit ain't easy in and of itself. So it was really fun to talk to Justin, who is actually a listener and fan of Experience by Design. So yay. 
and we really hope you enjoy the episode. town that charges for parking right and people can't understand like you know that's a leaves a really poor taste in people's mouth particularly with a um you know with with a patient population that really can't necessarily afford it so uh that's just one of the many things parking you know people don't think about just kind of shove it in um where you can but it's a really big deal well i tell my students when when i teach this stuff it's um it might not be your fault, but it is your problem. And that, right. you know, the, the road might be under construction or there might be traffic delays or there, you know, whatever that might've snowed, whatever it is, it's mm-hmm. not your fault, but it is your problem because it can yeah. impact that overall experience and driving well into driving into Boston to go to either, you know, the medical center area, Longwood area, mm-hmm. or even a mass general. Oh my God. And, but you know, it, it is funny because it's an artifact of, that was where the outskirts were at one time. Sure. Yeah. I mean, I was there during like all the, the, you know, the kind of the tail end, I guess, of the big dig. And it was just disaster. I mean, I was just reading, riding the T in the bus and that kind of stuff, but um, it was still crazy. I, I just, and I, I really wanted to live in Boston. Like when I, when I was going through residency, I'm like, I'm going to go, you know, get a job in big city USA, whether it's Boston or Chicago or whatever. And then I was like, I don't know. This seems, I kind of like suburban life. I kind of like being able to park a car someplace and have a garage and all these things that when I was younger, I didn't even consider to be important that as I got older, definitely were. So you opted at some point along the way to opt for the much slower pace of life, which is emergency medicine in Detroit. Totally. I mean, (laughs) absolutely. Uh, You know, it's the truth is everybody's got their little areas of comfort. And for some reason, that's where I feel most normal. And so my most calm, it's overwhelming at times for sure. But part of it's probably because I've been doing it long enough to, to feel like I'm pretty confident and good at it. And so uh, I just feel really comfortable there, even if it feels like the world is burning down around me. Um, and uh, I don't know, it, it, I get more stressed out making decisions in the grocery store than I do in our recess bay. Well, it's, you know, it's, it's a really interesting point to think about, right? Because you are an emergency doctor and, you know, the idea of so much of what we're asking employees, professionals, even professors like me to do is to kind of separate themselves from the normal flow of work to Mm -hmm. think about this new thing, which might be student experience or customer experience or patient experience. And I wonder to what extent, especially in its early phases, does this cause people to be like, I got to do one more thing now? Does it take them out of what their normal flow of work is and make them be more conscious of their activity? And to what extent does that, you know, negate their or be problematic in their own experiences? Yeah, I think there's actually multiple layers to what you just said. You're absolutely right. You're asking somebody to potentially like step out of what their normal uh, flow of work is. And especially now in the COVID era, workflow is pretty screwed up within the healthcare system anyway, um, as you look at cohorting and trying to keep everybody safe. So instead of asking them to do something different or harder, you really got to understand the the entire picture of what a physician is really going through. Like uh, I, I, for, you know, just for fun one day off the top of my head came up with 28 different metrics that I was responsible for (laughs) some in direct opposition with each other. Right. So 
Robin Peter and pay Paul. And, and that's assuming that at, at a conservative minimum, that 50% of my mental bandwidth is being used on patient care alone. And so in the patient, patient experience realm, like when non-clinician leaders are coming to physicians, trying to engage them, I really encourage them to think about, all right, well, how can I take into account all the other things going on and then create ways to help, you know, physicians navigate that more smoothly and easier rather than making it more difficult. Because if, if you're trying to come up with a new design or a new design um, intervention or a, a new patient experience intervention, like if it's hard, not only is it not going to go well, but I've seen people actively rebel against it. And that's cer- certainly not trying to, uh, that's certainly not going to accomplish what, what I think people are setting out to do. And so for you personally, I mean, if ER medicine in Detroit wasn't hard enough, what was your trajectory to say, you know what, this area of patient experience, I want to get involved in this. I want to be, I want to be a central figure in trying to figure this thing out at Henry Ford. So that's actually a really wonderful question that has kind of a kind of flowing journey. So um, as a resident, um, so actually I give a presentation that, it's basically called the the patient experience quotes that I'll always remember and, and, and really navigating that and how it shaped my journey. And so the first time I ever, ever got into the concept of patient experience was in 2008. I was at a conference and a physician um, said that a doctor's favorite patient is an intubated orphan. And, and <laughs> I, I, I like to think that he was being facetious. I really right. hope he was being facetious, but there's an element of truth there as well in that physicians have such cognitive way of going about, um, you know, the medical process that it would be really helpful to them if they could take care of a patient who would adhere to whatever they wanted them to do. They didn't have to deal with the communication and um, the questions from the patient or the family. Um, And so that was kind of the first time I had ever even been exposed to, to a concept like that. And then Later on in residency, I had to do a QA project um, where I tried to come up with an intervention to improve our patient experience within the department. And then I kind of moved into attending hood and was just trying to figure out life. And one of the things that continued to stand out to me was every time you heard the word in, in my in my arena, Press Ganey is a company that does surveys, and I'm sure that's pretty ubiquitous. It's kind of like all right. tissue papers, Kleenex, or all cotton swabs or Q-tip. Um, like you said the word Press Ganey or you said the words patient satisfaction and, and doctors flipped out right. and I really couldn't understand why there was such a visceral response when you're talking about trying to improve the experience that a, that a patient has within your healthcare system. And this was around 2014, 2015, when I kind of kept bumping into this question over and over again. And I wrote a blog post. I was an editor for a uh, medical blog and I wrote a blog post um Basically, the, the title was, what is the patient care experience and why do doctors hate it so much? <laughs> Tried to delineate the difference between intrinsic motivating factors like compassion, connection, patient safety, um, and then put that also against the extrinsic motivators of business-related metrics. And so I wrote this, it got posted, and what was very interesting is I had no problem writing it and posting it for the world to right. see, but I waited four days before I sent it to my own physician group because I felt... Okay uneasy and lacked confidence uh, in, in showing them how I felt, but I sent it. And next thing you know, my medical director at the time sent it to our president of the hospital at the time. And two days later, I'm sitting down with him talking about it. And he was really fascinated by what I wrote and wanted to empower me to continue to pursue um, 
you know, basically learning about it. And he gave me a book called Service Fanatics, which was written about the Cleveland Clinic's transformation in the patient experience realm, uh, written by Jim Merlino, who was their first chief experience officer and then became um, an executive at Prescani. He's actually now back at Cleveland Clinic. And I was I was totally hooked at that point. Um, and from that point on, I, I really was just trying to figure out how we can improve the experience for our patients because the patients deserve it, but also how can we in a more safe and collaborative environment for our physicians, because frankly, they deserve it. And, and my last five, six years have really been about refining that journey and coming up with a way to, to convince physicians that the patient experience absolutely matters, but also will help non-clinician leaders basically speak doctor so they can better engage us. Uh, and I'm trying to kind of be this go between between the two. Yeah, I, I, I love all of that so much because it really does deal with this complexity that underlies a lot of these you know uh, systems. If I can, you know, I, I almost said symptoms because I guess it's a Freudian slip, but systems, and I guess it is symptomatic of how approaching it with one lens, like we got to improve patient experience or we got to improve student experience for my world. Yeah, I get it. But if you only do that much, you're probably going to cause all kinds of other problems that you aren't even intending to. And the outcomes aren't going to be favorable from a systems perspective. Sure. And, and you even have to get more specific, like to say, I want to improve the patient experience. What does that even mean? Like, do you, do you truly just want your likelihood to recommend and your brand loyalty right. to be better? Or do you, do you want to improve access to scheduling? Do you want to improve flow from appointment to appointment? Do you want to improve virtual visits? Do you want to improve, you know, what, what the physical plant physically looks like so patients can get around easier your ADA access. I mean, what does it really mean? And that's a little bit different for every hospital, clinic, office, health system, et cetera. But to say, I just want to improve the patient experience is just so, so broad that you really need to drill down what it is that you're trying to improve in order to do it. Otherwise it just becomes way too overwhelming and seeming like way too many moving parts to effectively get anything done, which is why I think, you know, design theory and experience design is so cool. I, I didn't realize that it was an experience design geek until I started listening to your podcast, but oh. I love stuff because it really drills down to what are you trying to achieve and how do you get there and how do you get everybody, you know, to co-design and, and have some skin in the game. Right. I think that, you know, I, well, number one, I appreciate, you know, the, the, the enjoyment of the podcast. It's nice to know that there is a listener, at least. At least one. Enjoy, you got at least, at least one, one. Well, you know, you got to take what you can get. And the other piece of that is, well, at least what I enjoy about it is this integrative nature of it, right? You know, there's, it goes beyond just medicine. And I was thinking about, as I was, you know, getting ready for talking with you today, when did treatment shift from being treatment to care, right? So I'm not treating a patient, I'm caring for a patient. And what does that involve and entail? And it's, it's, a, it's only one word, but words matter. And to go from I am treating you versus I am caring for you, that carries with it a very different uh, set of obligations that might go beyond just medical or probably does go beyond medical training alone. For, for sure. And, you know, if you look at the overall kind of broad evolution of healthcare, like once upon a time, you know, way back in the day before medicine really existed, it was just like, you know, you hang out in a solarium and you kind of wait it out. And then there was the advent of penicillin and all those things, right. but it was, I, I'm going to do this to you. It was a very authoritarian, you know, one-sided relationship. It was clearly, 
I'm going to do this to you. And then right. the hospitality movement moved in uh, late seventies, eighties into early nineties. And it was, what can I do for you? And now I think the, the pendulum is shifting back a little bit to more of a collaborative team effort of, you know, um, what can we do with you? Um, which I think is really important because one of the things I tell patients is like, I, I understand the medicine. Um, I've, I know what I'm talking about, but I don't necessarily know you as a person. You're an expert in you. I'm an expert in the medicine and we need to work together if we're going to come up with an idea of what might be bothering you or, or causing your symptoms, what to do about it and how to move forward. And if you don't, if you don't do it that way, if there's not a collaborative team effort, um, then I think that healthcare is going to fail. I don't think that there is such a thing as excellent medical care unless it involves connection, compassion, communication, uh, and, and an emphasis on patient safety. What's interesting though, is everybody's different. Some patients may not feel like they're confident enough to discuss their own body. They may not know. Um, they may not feel comfortable being in that team collaborative environment in the way that some other more engaged or proactive patients are. And so before you even get there, just opening the door to checking in and seeing where the patient is at in the first place is an incredibly important thing that we in healthcare don't do enough of because for the most part, we were never taught to. Right. Um, I really sincerely believe that that our hardwiring as physicians, um, it, we were taught some things incorrectly, like the traditional way to do a history and physical exam is very algorithmic and prevents really getting into what I, I consider to be high value or high yield questions about, well, how are these symptoms affecting your daily life? Um, huh. What are you most concerned about today? Um, what do you think needs to happen today? Um, are all really important questions that have to be delivered, first of all, with a willingness to deliver it in the first place, but also the tone matters. Those can come across as very adversarial if, if delivered with a certain tone. Right. Um, but getting into those questions um, has been career altering for me because it, I find that it has actually saved me time and made healthcare better and easier for me um, by being able to more easily get to the crux of what the patient feels needs to happen and more readily align with the patient and their family in order to get it done. I, I do wonder what does that look like or does it look different? Does what you're describing to me look different based on the type of medicine being practiced, whether it's in an ED versus, um, a, you know, an oncology versus an OBGYN versus orthopedics or whatever. I mean, it might be the same kind of intent, but different medicine, different treatments, different relationships. Does it does it look start to look different? Well, I, I think that on a superficial level, it's very easy to say that it is different, but I don't really know if it is. Like there's certain elements of, of interpersonal communication in the healthcare setting that are very easily extrapolated amongst any specialty. Like, so in the broadest terms, I'm in the catastrophe business. Um, my job is to assess whether you have a life-threatening illness and either rule and more likely rule it out rather than tell you what it is. My job is frankly, sometimes more, more about telling you what it's not and then making you feel better. And then ultimately deciding, do you need to stay in the hospital today or can you safely, you know, be sent home right. to the next level of care. But in order to size up my patients, yes, I don't have an established relationship with them. Most of my patients I've never seen before. Um, so I have to do it in a very short amount of time, but my desires about understanding their expectations, their, their goals, their fears, their concerns have got to be the same as if I'm an oncologist trying to want, figure out 
what a patient may want from their cancer treatments, what their goals are, what their expectations are, you know, what their values are and what means the most to them. If I'm an orthopedic surgeon, like what am I trying to get you to return back to? Are you a very active, you know, soccer player? Or does me fixing your knee allow you to actually earn an income for X amount of years so you can still support your family? Do you, are you going to need help? Are you going to need to go to a physical rehab or are you going to be able to take care of things on your own? If you're not willing to, to dive into those things, you're never going to know and you're going to set yourself up as well as set your patients up for, for failure. Um, and, and I think that a lot of times physicians are, are nervous about asking those deeper personal life questions because they're, they're worried it's going to take up more time um, where I find that it ends up actually saving time because you prevent, you know, the issue down the line by, by getting out in front of it. And, um, and so to, that was a long answer to a short question, but I, I think that, Really, at its core, I, I think that it's it's pretty similar across specialties. It's interesting because my wife, who's a LICSW, licensed clinical social worker, she was she used to work at Mass General in a neuropsych unit, and there were times where you know that was a social worker's job because the surgeons, you know, mm-hmm. may not be good at the bedside manner. And it makes me think of the um, perhaps the greatest exhibition on patient experience that exists on television, which is the TV show, Doc Martin. I don't know if you're familiar with this TV show. I've used to watch pretty much every medical show there is. I can't say I've seen Doc Martin. Well, it's from the UK and I'll set it up really quick. And if you have, you know, Tubi or Hulu, you can watch like the first, you know, seasons of it. But the whole setup is that there's this doctor who's a surgeon. He's got like, you know, you know, childhood trauma, setting that aside, but he's a surgeon, very, he's a great surgeon, great physician in terms of being able to diagnose and treat but his interpersonal ability is horrendous. And he goes Mm -hmm. to this small town that he kind of quasi grew up in to be the general practitioner of the town Mm -hmm. because he also developed this um, blood phobia for some reason. So he can't no, he can no longer be a surgeon. So he's a general practitioner. And the whole show is kind of predicated around, he's a great physician in terms of diagnosing and treating, but he's not great in terms of just human interaction. And it's this tension between He's a great doctor, but not really a great person. Yeah. And so a couple, couple things there. So first of all, the, the doctor show that I think actually has the best bedside manner is Doc McStuffins, which is a cartoon. Yes. Yes. Um, I'm, ve- I'm very familiar with Doc McStuffins. But she, yeah, Doc <laughs> McStuffins is no joke. She's got some incredible bedside manner. Um, but so I think that there's a lot of perception about physicians don't have great bedside manner or they're not great communicators. And and some of it is unique to the person because there's absolutely physicians who are wonderful communicators. And, but there's also, again, I think it goes deeper to the hardwiring. And one of the things that I've explored in my whole journey in the patient experience world is really patients and then, and physicians are, are, are speaking with two different voices. Like the, the default position for a physician is they want to convey medical knowledge. And whenever things get a little tense or stressful, they default to this cognitive wiring right. where patients have a story. Whatever's going on with them fits into a larger story of their life. And they want to tell that story. And if they're not, you know, able to communicate that because the physician doesn't allow them, then there's either a sense of alienation or abandonment or kind of a negative feedback loop where they're going to kind of up amplify uh, trying to get their point across. And then the physician's going to get a little bit more freaked out and then they're going to come back with cognition. And then it just, it never stops. And and so a lot of what I, I like trying to focus on is, is trying to break that loop by helping physicians tap more into their interpersonal side because they're, they're not, 
defaulting to their cognitive sense all the time when they're at home. It's, it's strictly in that clinical environment. And, right. and um, I, I just think that physicians need, need a safe place to be able to do that. They need to be supported in, in, in give, being given the tools to do so. A lot of them have just never been taught how to convey those things in the language of a patient. You got to meet the, you know, meet the patient where they're at by using their language and, and allowing them to tell their story. And a lot of physicians are just very uncomfortable doing so. And then, you know, it's, it's actually, it's interesting because the kind of work, the research that I do as an ethnographer, this is what we do. We have to go into settings that we're not familiar with to talk with people who we don't know and engage with them on their level so that we can understand their worlds. Mm-hmm. It sounds very similar. I've had, I've looked a little bit at, you know, communication and healthcare settings. I've had some students do projects on that. And one of the things that I think there's a real danger of is what I might call checklist interactions, mm-hmm. right? Like make sure you go through the checklist of things you have to say to the patient in order to, you know, cover all the bases. And I know a lot of healthcare, a lot of medicine is checklist, right? There is a yep. way of going about doing the H&P. There is a way going about doing, you know, an exam. But checklist interactions can really be counterproductive because they, they lose their authenticity and, and connection because people feel like you're just going through the motions. For sure. And I, I think if you're going to implement something like that, you can't just focus on the quantitative checks, right? You, you got to give right. some context to it, which is a, lo- a much harder lift. And, and that's why it often isn't done. But you don't want to give the physician a, a impression that they need to be some sort of robotic scripted person and hit A to go to B and B to go to C, et cetera. Like you want to give them some element of a scaffolding though, where some guidance on, you know, these kind of things are best practices and you can inject that into your, you know, patient encounters um, while also utilizing your true authentic self. Um, there's going to be some very extroverted physicians who are comfortable in the communication area. And there's going to be others that, that need a little more, more help or support or cover because they're a little bit more introverted at baseline. Um, and so the checklists are important, but I think if, if you do it without any sort of context as to why they're important, much like anything else, it's, it's kind of destined to fail. And so, you know, everybody's got to kind of meet the person that they're at where they're at. A physician needs to meet a patient where they're at. Non-clinician leaders need to make, meet a physician where they're at if they want to try and engage them in their processes. Um, you know, in the presentation that you had heard a couple of weeks ago, like there isn't anywhere in a room right now, a bunch of physicians saying, wow, how can I better engage patient experience professionals? Right. But there's a whole lot of people interested in as patient experience professionals, how do I better engage physicians? Well, if you want to engage the physicians, you're going to have to come speak their language. You're going to have to come to their turf and meet them where they're at, not, not vice versa. And you can't come at them by saying, look, we need to get your scores up and here's what you're going to do. Like, what does that even mean? It basically ends up telling the doc that they're not doing good enough or doing well enough. Uh, And instead you need to collaborate with them by understanding their world in the first place by meeting them where they're at. And I think in, in, I would imagine in design theory, but really in any sort of organizational evolution, like that's one of the things that really needs to be emphasized is just, you need to meet your learner or your colleague or your ally where they're at in order to more, more accurately collaborate with them. Checklists are important though. I mean, you want to have an element of consistency or reliability. I don't think that there's any physician in the world who, who, is bad at communication or bad at patient experience. I think that the system is very stressful and task driven. And as a result, we're wildly inconsistent in the manner in which we deliver care. 
um, on any given day or any given encounter. And so a lot of what I try and focus on is how can I make it easier and more consistent for the physicians um, to, to deliver excellent care, which as I've said already, doesn't exist if, if, if there is a connection and communication and compassion interwoven into the labs and the radiology and all that other stuff that I'm doing. It, it reminds me of, I was for a little while, I was doing some research on the work of clinical documentation improvement specialists, you know, CDIs. Mm-hmm. And I don't know if, if you have an active CDI program at, at Henry Ford, but for folks that are listening, who might not know what this is. Basically it's, it's, it's a, a team of people whose job it is, they told me to make the sick and to make the patient look as sick on paper as he or she is in person. Mm-hmm. It's, it's, it's to make sure that everything that is clinically indicated is clinically present on the documentation. And really good CDI programs, their strategy was the following. They wanted to hire CDI specialists internally, primarily nurses, because they had relationships with the physicians who they were going to go to and say, Dr. Bright, your documentation is, you know, missing something. Um, And they knew how to talk to them and get in the body. And one of the most clever things was they would go to a doctor and say, look, you know, Dr. Bright, um, I know that you handle really difficult cases and it's, it must be frustrating for people not to know the challenges that you face and what you bring in handling these difficult cases. What would really be helpful to let people know the work you do is to make sure that that difficulty is present in your documentation. It yeah. wasn't this, we need to, you know, if you, if you document better, the hospital is going to make more money. It was, and if, and if they went to doctors and with that argument, they would basically insult the doctors with a profit motive. Mm-hmm. of improving the documentation. And I thought that was flipping brilliant because they knew the culture of the doctors. They knew how to design this approach to get buy-in from the physicians who had to buy in or else the CDI program was never going to get off the ground. Well, and very true. And so there's two layers to that though. It, yes, they spoke their language, but the way you presented it was the nurses basically tapped into intrinsic values in the right. physician instead of the extrinsic values. It's very easy to say, well, money drives the world. And it does. I mean, we're in a capitalistic world. Let's not be naive to what's going on here. This is a business. It's an industry. But money doesn't motivate. It doesn't inspire. And so when you come at them from, hey, if you don't document this, we're not going to be able to bill for it. Or if you don't get your numbers up, you're going to lose your contract or your bonus is going to be affected or X, Y, Z. Like That doesn't inspire people. It makes people mad. But you can't really ever, you're never going to get a physician to say, you know what? Compassion is bad. Connection is bad. (laughs) Patient safety is bad. Like No, that doesn't happen. So if you can effectively tap into that, the other stuff should take care of itself anyway, but it's just very easily and repetitively we, we fall into the, well, the carrot and the stick and the extrinsic motivators instead of really tapping into more of the intrinsic stuff. And, and that's one of my, my fascinations is why do we keep doing it over and over again and expect a different result? It reminds me of the movie Office Space, which is the greatest movie on employee oh, yeah. experience ever made, where the, the, you know, the, the, the lead actor says, you know, that'll get somebody to work just hard enough not to get fired. Oh, for sure. You know, there's, and, and if you look at, you know, organizations, you know, we talk about employee engagement. Um, this is my, my, my way of articulating a theory that's been said multiple, multiple times. But I kind of look at organizational alignment as almost like a as the symbol of like a, a target, not like target the store, but like a bullseye. You've got the center 
parts. And that's your, your 30%, your 20% most engaged employees who are going to go above and beyond no matter what, because they believe in the mission, they believe in the culture. And frankly, it's probably just inherent in them. And then you've got an outer ring of probably about 60% ish that will go either way with the right coaching. If they're coached and developed in the right way, they're going to become more engaged and be willing to go above and beyond. If they're turned off by leadership or they're not engaged appropriately, they're going to go the opposite way. And then you've got that, uh, that outer ring of maybe five, 10% of, of low performers or right. or whatever you want to call them. And, you know, a lot of time in leadership is spent trying to coach up that bottom 10% when it really should be focused on your overachievers and that, that middle ground and helping them become, you know, larger achievers. And, and that's really one of the secret sauces in, in organizational alignment and culture changes. How do you get that middle ground to, to behave more like your, your super users, your super performers, and how do you, mitigate or coach out or phase out some of the underperformers instead of spending all of your time disproportionately trying to coach them up when it's probably a losing proposition. It reminds me of this book. I can't remember the book, but uh, it was referring to net promoter score. And you know, rather than trying to spend a lot of time making your detractors promoters, spend much more time you know, on your neutrals or mm-hmm. your low promoters into being you know, promoters or super promoters. Right. Same philosophy. Yeah, like how do you get more people to behave like they're not in it just for the check or whatever, or they're just going through the motions or doing just enough to not get fired. And, and that's as much on the person as it is on the organizational culture. Um, if, if you don't promote those people, if you don't develop them, and frankly, if you don't create a level of accountability there, they're going to do just enough to not get fired. And you know, office space is pretty, you know, I used to watch it as a comedy, but now that I'm, <laughs> as I'm older and I understand, you know, what it means to work for now 20 years, like um, I look at it very differently. It means different. And, and I, I don't know if that's just because I'm older or of my interest in, in organizational culture and alignment, but um, there's actually, it's incredibly smart. Uh, some of the things that they talk about in that movie, besides the jokes. It's, 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 it's darn near a documentary. Yep. Um, well, as you, as you become more familiar with it, you know, it's like, oh, it's really funny. Then you live it. You're like, oh, it's mm-hmm. not so funny. Mm-hmm. One of the things I appreciate about your talk, and this is one of the things I, I emphasize when I'm working with clients or even talking with my students is shifting, you know, levels of experience. So the idea of, it's not just about student experience. It's about learning experience. It's not just about patient experience. It's about healthcare experience, because once you shift that level of healthcare experience, now you're including, you know, all of the staff, you're including the the healthcare professionals, you're including the doctors and the patients and the families and whoever else is part of that ecosystem. And yeah, it's a big ecosystem. But once you start understanding all of that, as you said, alignment and integration, then it, it becomes a very different task other than just creating higher, you know, cap scores or something mm-hmm. like that. Yeah, so I actually love the term eco- ecosystem that, that you brought up. In our discussions between my presentation and then this talk, like I've really never heard it described that way before, but I think really makes a lot of sense. It speaks to the complexity of the, you know, the interweb uh, of how everybody's relationship affects somebody else in some way uh, within within the house of medicine. And I've always kind of looked at it and sold it as more of a yin and the yang where the patient experience is incredibly important because it contributes to the employee or the physician experience and and back and forth. If I'm more easily 
engaging with my patients. If I'm having awesome positive feedback encounters where little old ladies are giving me hugs and trying to set me up with their granddaughters and, you know, people are asking me the greatest compliment a, a, a patient in my emergency department can ask me or say to me is, can I have your card? I'd love to come see you in your office. And I'm like, this is my office. This is it. <laughs> uh, yeah. Welcome to my house. Um, you know, but that's it if I can have more of those encounters because I'm employing best practices, because I'm putting connection at the forefront of my patient encounters, instead of just medical cognition, I'm going to have a much better experience because I'm not getting called into the principal's office all the time. I'm not fielding complaints. I'm not getting doorway complaints where I think I'm walking out of the room and then they say, but wait, hold on. I thought we were going to talk about this and I have to go back and ends up taking up more time. And so, that's the yin and the yang there by improving the patient experience, by improving interpersonal communication with physicians, which is really one of my main focuses. It, it improves my experience. It, it improves right. the physician experience. And, and that realization was career changing because there's a point where I realized that I got good at medicine. Like residency was about learning the medicine. And then my first couple of years as an attending was about figuring out how to best apply it and get my feet under me confidently while also managing and supervising all the other stuff that goes on when you're basically the, the captain of the ship. But right around that five year mark, I absolutely noticed a new gear uh, because medicine suddenly got easy. I knew what to do for heart attacks. I knew what to do for strokes. I knew what to do for abdominal pain. And some of that just no longer required the same kind of complex thought. And it freed up tons and tons of bandwidth to, to focus on this other stuff. And so all the things that really interest me, interested me about emergency medicine in the beginning, right? So the resuscitations, the traumas, the heart attacks, all that stuff. It's like tying my shoes now. It's not a big deal to me. It's the, it's understanding all the other dynamics that factor into the patient's experience in our department, the operational experience and, and, and really smoothing that out to, to better throughput and all these things. Like that's my fascination now. Um, and, and, that positive feedback loop that I get with the patients because I feel more often than not, my encounters go really, really well. Like that's, what's going to allow me to continue to get out of bed uh, and do this for as long as I want to. And frankly, as long as I need to practice medicine in order to support my family. Uh, and, and that was a career altering realization for me that, that has made the last couple of years incredibly fulfilling for me. I th especially, you know, I think about all the ecosystem part, right? I mean, in, in sociology, there's this concept, social determinants of health mm -hmm. and so much of health. And I, this is not my area, but I know a little bit about it. Like most things I know a little bit, I know just enough to get into trouble when I say the wrong thing, but it's the idea that there are all these things outside of just um, the medicine that impact um, how healthy a person is or their yep. you know, physical well-being, like home ownership, right? That's a big one. Mm -hmm. um, obviously, you know, employment, that's a big one. Family status, that's a big one. And so you're you're working in Detroit and you're in the new center. Where are you located in Detroit? Yeah, basically in the new center-ish area, midtown area. Yeah. Right. So, you know, and it's been a while since I've gone to school just down the road at Wayne State. But at the time, it was, you know, it was from a social determinants of health standpoint, there was a lot of factors that would negatively impact someone's physical well-being. Let's try sure. to put it that way. And so how do you then... Um, as a person who is like, okay, I know how to do this medical thing, then start to incorporate all of these other things in the process. So the big, the big catastrophe disaster that we're all experiencing right now in, in COVID-19 
really laid bare the social determinants of health and frankly, the inequities in healthcare um, in my own community, like COVID devastated inner city Detroit in March, April, May, just sheer devastation. And African-Americans were being affected critically and dying like orders of magnitude disproportionately compared to suburbanites and, and non, non-African-Americans. And in March, it was like, well, is it just bad luck or, or what is it? And it really became like obvious that it was just some incredible social inequities that, uh, that have happened as a result of poverty, uh, lack of transportation, um, you know, school districting, just modes of employment. Like you can't social distance if your job is to clean airplanes at the airport. You can't social distance right. if you have a multi-generational family in a, you know, in a single apartment building. Like it doesn't work the same way that it works elsewhere. And so it's really laid bare a lot of the inequities that are, are happening in healthcare if it wasn't already obvious to people before that. Um, Henry Ford, I'm very proud to say, has been very proactive in the realm of diversity, equity, and inclusion uh, in trying to remedy a lot of that. And frankly, in the emergency department, it means putting a mirror up to ourselves and discussing what we're doing well and what we're not. Um, Does our department in terms of employment and staff and physicians and nurses, do we look like the patients that we're taking care of? Are we representing the people that we take care of, you know, appropriately? Are there means that we can uh, tap into in order to basically like become social changers? Like, do we need to do things that are outside of what we would traditionally do as physicians? We have a gift card program now where patients who are having a hard time meeting rent because they're not employed right now, like we're able to give them actual tangible things. Now we have food packages for people who have food insecurity because either their overall socioeconomic status at baseline or what COVID has done to them. And so we have basically accepted the fact that we are huge, huge players in the, in the overall public health and and social determinants of health realm. And, and we have chosen to take on that role with vigor and with pride because you know, we in the emergency department are, we're seeing everybody, we're almost like the canaries in the cold mine. We, right. we see things that go on in our communities before other people are seeing it. Uh, and so we, I hope that others would agree, but we seem to be answering the call best that we can with the resources that we have. Um, and a lot of that's just been open discussion amongst our own team about, are we doing enough? And, you know, are we, are we conscious of the fact that implicit bias and social determinants of health and social inequities really play into how well a person is. Um, race is a social construct. It's not a medical or genetic construct. It's um, people are not more at risk just because they're black or Hispanic or whatever. They're more at risk because by virtue of being black or Hispanic, a lot of times their socioeconomic status right. takes that they don't have the same access uh, or ability to, to access healthcare that other people do. Uh, and that's really what the huge tragedy has been in my community for the last five, six months. Yeah, we, we had an episode um, with some faculty from uh, Simmons College around, you know, the, or Simmons, you know, Simmons College about um, 
public health, right? And mm-hmm. the COVID crisis. And, you know, it's, this is where it becomes a very much a sociological conversation mm-hmm. as well, as I think all things are, but I'm, you know, I'm biased that way because so many of th- these things are interconnected and then bringing it into the healthcare system, healthcare setting, I should say, trying to tease out that it's really hard to sit there when you have staff, we've only been talking primarily about um, physicians, but when you have staff who are interacting with patients and the staff themselves are undergoing extreme anxiety, not just around COVID-19 and possible exposure, but around the fact that they have their own problems in their life they're facing. Yep. And it's hard not to bring those things to work, especially when you have to deal with people that are in stressful situations anyway, then it just becomes a cauldron of stress. I agree. I mean, so everybody has a story, right? So right. Um, I I think that in emergency medicine in particular, the prevailing thought has been bringing emotion into the game is done so at your detriment. You have to be able to compartmentalize and be able to move on from a death into another room almost, you know, in a matter of minutes. And um, if you let emotion in, it's only going to hurt you, which I I actually find the opposite to be true. Um, Letting emotion in is, is what makes this gratifying, but you're right. Everybody's got a story and, you know, regardless of your lot in life, you have no idea what's going on in a person's household. You don't know what they're struggling with. And um, I don't know that it's the patient's job to care about my story, but I certainly need to care about theirs. And I need to be mindful enough and present enough to know that I need to check my issues at the door when I walk in that room and make sure that patient knows that for the time that I'm with them, they're the most important thing to me. Um, and that I'm generally invested in their well-being and, as a person and not just them as the patient in 227 with, you know, the, the chest pain. Um, but what we're seeing with COVID is everybody was afraid. And I, I was absolutely afraid that I was putting my life and my family's life at risk uh, until I, I as a person and we as a healthcare system or as a department figured out how to keep ourselves safe. Um, you know, we're seeing a lot of people within the ecosystem who, who aren't compensated on the level that a physician is they're, they're struggling. Like right. they, they just can't, you know, work while also having their kids at home. Uh, they can't, you know, it's, it's, they need to stay home so they don't have to pay for childcare because they don't want to send their child to, be exposed to other people. There's just so many different levels to what's going on now. Um, it's affecting everybody. I mean, we went from everybody seeing us as frontline heroes to then the volume just shut off as quickly as it turned on. And people were genuinely afraid of losing their jobs, you know, after a, a month after, you know, surviving absolute devastation on levels that none of us had ever seen. You went from that to, Oh my gosh, are, are we going to have to, you know, downsize significantly um, in our department. And so it's just been this really crazy balance of, of social and psychological and, and emotional health. And as well as obviously the physical, real medical health all intermixing at the same time as we go through this pandemic and continue to figure out what to do about it. That's been one of the, the things that people find surprising they you know, that because elective procedures are down, <laughs> you're going to find a lot of revenue for hospitals is down mm-hmm. as well. I mean, I don't know that, I don't know the, um, the earning structure of a, of a hospital, but you know, if you don't have patients coming in for treatments, whether they are, you know, elective, whether they are, you know, treatments of whatever kind, people are delaying treatments. That's going to impact the bottom line and hospitals are in the middle of a pandemic, laying off people, having to make decisions to lay off people. 
Yeah. And it's incredibly difficult to wrap your head around that. Um, and then it's, you know, back to the original discussion of design and engagement. Like how do you engage staff who are afraid not only for their health, but their financial well-being during all this? It's, it's kind of a time where a lot of things have had to be tabled for a later discussion because of everything going on. But yeah, it's, I never in the beginning, like I had colleagues from that I went through residency with that weren't in an epicenter. And so while Detroit was getting decimated, I had friends who were in unaffected areas, basically just having hours cut. And I couldn't even wrap my head around how that was happening. And we had a seven week period where one day it just turned on and then one day it just turned off. And it went from, you know, people in every nook and cranny in our emergency department to maybe max 25% of our capacity and a bunch of people wondering when the patients were coming. And and a lot of it was, you know, I think that a lot of at-risk people probably got super duper sick and there was definitely people who unfortunately were were dying at home and not even presenting to the hospital. And then there was the the underlying fear that a lot of people had that if they came to a hospital um, that, they were going to be exposed to COVID and actually felt more safe at home than they felt in the hospital for a long time. Uh, and then some, I think were actually heeding the, the call of public officials to actually just stay home and not overwhelm healthcare for semi insignificant things. And all the elective procedures were, were turned off because we didn't know how to do so in a safe manner. Um, and for a long time, I don't know about a long time, but for a period of time after the, the initial crisis here, you know, we thought we were going to be running two parallel businesses, basically a COVID business and then the other business. And what we have found is we actually got pretty good at this very quickly and have figured out how to safely take care of our team, but also safely take care of our patients and, and cohort them in a way where, you know, non COVID patients are not going to be exposed to COVID patients and vice versa. And patients getting surgeries are not going to be exposed from the, from the care team and the care team is not going to be exposed by that patient, which in, in March and April, that was, inconceivable that we'd actually get to this point by September, October. Like we, we didn't think that was going to be a possibility and, and it has. So it's weird. Like we've almost returned to a business as usual, only I have to wear a whole lot more crap now when I, when I go to work, like uh, it, it takes longer just to gear up, but um, it's pretty much business as usual. Now. Um, one, one interesting thing is kids have really stopped coming though. Like the pediatric visits to emergency departments and, and hospitals in general has, has dropped off dramatically. And that one's been even slower to return than some of the other things that we weren't seeing um, after kind of things shut off here. Kind of curious as you guys are talking about this, I'm kind of curious that you see um, any decreases in certain kinds of visits like gun wounds or knife wounds or things like from any kind of, you know, complex. I do understand that for instance, you know, the, I don't know if the numbers on this, but domestic abuses might have gone up and unreported. I mean, how did that affect not just the COVID cases, but the non-COVID cases that were coming in the door? So it, it happened in, in kind of phases, right? So February, so March 9th, just for chronology, March 9th is the day everything changed in Detroit. That was the day that we at Henry Ford had our very first COVID case. And March 12th of that week, that was the Thursday, March 9th was a Monday, March 12th um, was the day that um, the Big Ten basketball tournament stopped and March Madness stopped and schools started closing and things all started getting canceled. And in part, that was due to a guy on the Utah Jazz who had gotten COVID and right. even to a guy on the Pistons who they had been playing against. And so that's what triggered kind of everything. And so 
I think honestly, in retrospect, we were seeing COVID in late February and just didn't know it. Um, and then COVID happened and it went from people actually coming in for X, Y, Z to, it didn't matter what you came in for. You had COVID. If you had actual COVID symptoms, obviously COVID, you had belly pain, COVID. You came in as a car accident. Oh, by the way, your x-ray looks like you have COVID. Uh, you came in as a drug overdose. Get what, guess what? Your x-ray looks like you've got COVID lung. It didn't matter. And for seven weeks, literally everybody had it and that was it. And then what we realized was once it shut off and it kind of stopped, um, nobody came in. Like we were started wondering like, where are the heart attacks? Where are the strokes? Where are the kids? Where are all these things? And they just stopped coming in altogether. The traumas, all of it for, I'd say from like Easter through most of May, like just none of it happened. And then June, I think that's when a lot of the state of Michigan finally started inching towards reopening um, is when things started slowly trending back to normal. We'd see car accidents, we'd see trauma, we'd see strokes, we'd see heart attacks, and it started to come back. Uh, and for a while, it was only that and like very scant COVID mixed in. And now, honestly, I think the the second wave that we've been kind of dreading coming during fall and winter, I'm starting to see signs that it's, it's probably started. Right. Um, now the COVID numbers are picking up, but not only that, the degree of illness with COVID is, is ticking back up, but we're, we're dealing with that while intermixed with all the other stuff that we're seeing now. It's mm. like I said, just back to normal, just with more gear and trying to sort out the COVID amongst it. So as, as we're talking about all of the, all the changing complexity, you talked about design theory, it, it must be really hard to employ a fail fast a mindset approach in a healthcare setting. You know, I was looking at the Henry Ford Health Systems website, and one of the funny things that caught my eye was the headline: "Creativity ensures patient medication needs are met." Now, there's a few ways you could take that: creativity and and patient medication needs, yeah. some of which are going to be like I'm sure very creative. But like you know, I also know that there's constrained. You know, healthcare is a constrained environment. Mm-hmm. So how do you how do you manage or how do you balance experimental approaches to doing things in a, you know around experience with you know we are a hospital there are things we have to follow and adhere to so that we don't interfere with actually the delivery of healthcare. Well, so you've got evidence based medicine, right? And so right. that's always really at the forefront, at least for, as a practitioner, um, at the forefront of everything that I'm going to do is what is evidence-based supported in in terms of taking care of my patient. Um, But what, from from a patient experience design part, you're not really talking about the medicine at all. Like most patients don't actually have a problem with the medicine delivered, right? The actual care, the actual technicality of the care delivered. Everybody who shows up at Henry Ford feels in general, that we're very competent physicians, if not exceptional physicians, but their experience with us is going to be totally dictated by how smoothly they're brought in, how safe they feel there, what kind of dignity and respect and privacy are they given? Can we, to your you know words, experiment, can we utilize or pilot some new technologies that update them better about where they are on the care pathway? Are there different ways that we can help get them access to their medications without them having to actually physically walk up to the lobby pharmacy if, if they can't do so or areas of our hospital are basically locked off or, or cordoned off now where there isn't access the way there was pre-pandemic. Um, it, it's, it's not 
it's not the soft stuff. It's just all the peripheral stuff that plays into the experience that matters. If, if going back to what we talked about in the very beginning, when I read service fanatics, that entire concept uh, that, that led Cleveland clinic to realize they needed to change their experience was the realization that despite the fact that they were a world renowned medical institution, everybody accepted that they were fantastic doctors. People were still choosing the other health, the competing health system down the street because they thought, that the other elements of care were not being delivered effectively. They thought mm. the doctors were, you know, not nice. They felt that extra room was unclean or whatever. Like they felt that they would get the same type of care for your bread and butter stuff at the place down the street, but the place down the street did a better job of making the patient more, you know, more included in their care plan right. and did better things to, to provide them access in ways that at the time the clinic was not. Um, and so I think that it's very, very important to continue to innovate and push the boundaries and limits of how we deliver interpersonal care right. while also, you know, practicing evidence-based medicine and in the end doing what's right for the patient all the time, every time, no matter what. And so what, what kinds of approaches are you all using to um, think experimentally about doing exactly that. I mean, what, what's, what's the process of integrating ideas or, or coming up with or identifying successes that might already exist? So part of it is employing the patient voice, right? I mean, the if you don't employ the patient's voice in this, you're not going to know what's working and what's not. Um, and so as an example, like I, we talked about earlier, a lot of my patients have food insecurity or have financial insecurities that there was a simple solution to. We were able to work with our population health department to basically put together um, food kits for patients in, in conjunction with some food banks and things in our community. The, the gift cards that I mentioned, that was just a doctor in my group is just being a good guy and having access to a whole lot of gift cards and just donating them. Um, but you know, we're, we're talking about, we have, we have, um, a, it's called the Tom growth, uh, patient needs fund. So we have a patient needs fund that we as physicians all contribute to, um, as part of like my planned giving. And so we all put money into it and we use that money to buy medicines for our patients, to pay rent for patients, mm. to do all these things that need to happen for our patients to pay for cabs, to pay for bus fare. Um, and then, you know, larger, um, experimentations with technology, like, using what we call my chart. We, we use Epic as our healthcare system or as our health record. So better integrating my chart for virtual visits for our patients who felt unsafe. Um, are there ways that we as a Henry Ford as a community can partner with, you know, um, web providers in order to, to provide better Wi-Fi to patients in the community, right? So are there ways that we can do that better? Um, and, and so everything right now is on the table. If, I, if I'm a silver linings guy, um, and I'm trying to find positives in what COVID-19 has done. Basically, it was this monstrous global disruption that forced us to say, maybe some things are not working anymore or will not work in the future, but also gave us permission to say some of the things that we've always wanted to change, but couldn't, maybe now there's an opportunity to do so because there's been such a global disruption right. opportunity to do so. So I think right now, every option is on the table as we look at, ramping back up and providing care in this new world, uh, whatever that means, you know, to different people, but it's a new world now. I don't think we're going back to the old world and we need to look at, you know, are there better ways to deliver care and, and access to our patients? It was, it's, it's, it's been funny that my wife who has her own private LICSW practice, you know, 
helping you basically do providing therapy before COVID, it would be difficult to get paneled by insurance companies to do telemedicine to do. And then as soon as COVID hit, everyone's like, do telemedicine. (laughs) And and, oh, by the way, the co-pays are free. You know, it was just like this shift all of a sudden where, you know, you know, I was joking with somebody earlier today. I said, you know, you know, college professors and teachers in general have become video production experts. It's not enough. I got to create content. I got to figure out how to, you know, go to camera two, go to camera three, you know, bring it in fade, right? You got to all of a sudden orchestrate this thing, which on the one hand is daunting, but can be really exciting because it opens up opens up a lot of new possibilities that otherwise schools would have never really bid on because they thought they had an option or a choice. Yeah, I, I think it was very easy to cling to the status quo um, because the status quo was believed to be working, and for most it was. Um, but you, you shut off the world from each other all of a sudden, right? Like suddenly a lot of things have to be done differently. And and I do, like I said, I think that's given a lot of people in a lot of different industries and professions, the permission, the freedom to seek out different ways to go about conducting their business and interacting with their clients, their patients, their customers, consumers, et cetera, depending on, you know, what realm of industry you're in. And I think that, that part's good. It's actually been very empowering because it, it's given everybody the freedom to, to say maybe there's a different and a, and a better way. One of the one of the last things I think I wanted to ask you about was this notion of of service delivery, and I I talk about this with my students. You know, our students customers, and they'll go, yeah, we're customers, and I'll go, okay, let's think about what what's entailed in the status of customer. And as we talk about that, they'll go, well, we're not quite customers. We're kind of customers in some way. We're customers, and in some ways, we're not. And we do the same exercise with patients, our patients, customers, because if they are customers, then is the customer always right? But no, the doctor has a lot of expertise. And, you know, on the one, so I wonder, number one, about, you know, patients as customers, how does that impact the dynamic of doctors and patients? And number two, so much misinformation out there around um, medical treatments and healthcare. Right? How does how does that shifted and shaped your own interactions with patients around you? You're trying to communicate with them on a, on the same level, but at the same time, you're not. You have much more knowledge about these things than they do. And just because their uncle posted on Facebook doesn't mean it's accurate. So there's like 50 layers to that. That I'm really glad you asked this question. So at a baseline, right? It's called the healthcare industry, right? So industry generates money. We also live in a, in a country where we trade a skill or time or expertise for currency and then use that currency to buy goods. Like that's the basis of our, our world. Um, and so patients are customers. They are consumers in that they are coming to me to get something, whether it's medical expertise Maybe they don't want my expertise. They just want my ability to click a button and get them an x-ray right. or an MRI or a prescription. They don't really care about my expertise. They want they want something tangible. And that's a, another part that we'll come back to. But they're, they're coming to me. I have an expectation that I'm going to indirectly receive compensation for it. I'm a salaried worker. No matter what I do, I basically get the same amount of money. But my healthcare system pays me based on the money that's generated by a patient seeking them out instead of somebody else. Right. Um, but it's a really indirect way, right? So the I was listening to one of the other um, podcast episodes about um, healthcare billing and like, it makes no sense, right? So a patient's coming to me, I have no idea how to tell them what 
I'm about to do what it's going to cost. Right. And they have no idea what it's going to cost or if they can even pay for it. And then this whole rigmarole happens between the insurance company and the coders and the hospital. And they ultimately come up with a number of, all right, I'm going to pay for this. The patient's going to pay for this. And you may not find out for like six months or a year. Like I didn't get a bill for nearly a year after my, my daughter was born. And like, I was like, what? <laughs> uh, so it, it, but in the end, like they are paying for a service. I am delivering a service. So by technical definition, they are a customer. Moreover, there are people within the healthcare whose job it is to care about the patient as a customer. They want them to seek out right. my institution instead of the one down the street, right? Um, it's a very competitive, growing industry. And um, I absolutely want patients to be happy with the care I provided, to feel like I provided good care, and for them to say, you know what, I would want them to come back. Right. I would want to tell my dad to come back instead of saying, you know, I would never go to Henry Ford again. I'm going to go to X hospital down the street. So in that regard, they are a customer, but it doesn't make sense. Like I would never go to Starbucks and get my cappuccino and not know what it cost. Um, and I would pay for it immediately. I, I have no idea what a CAT scan is going to cost somebody, mainly because it's going to cost you something totally different than the next person because of whatever policy you have. You also, from an alignment standpoint and engagement standpoint, most physicians, they don't see their patients as customers, Right. Um, particularly if you're like a hospital-based salaried employee, I'm not necessarily going to see them as a customer because it doesn't, whether they choose me or not, doesn't directly impact me. If I'm a physician that owns my own practice, like, and I have to pay, you know, rent and I have to pay for lights and I have to pay overhead. I'm absolutely going to want to grow my practice by having customers choose me than right. the other guy down the street. So it's very complex there. No, the, the patient or the customer in healthcare is not always right. They don't always know what they need. Frankly, I don't think the customer is always right when I go to Starbucks, either. <laughs> uh, but they have a different motivation to appease a patient. Or I'm sorry, a, a, a customer than maybe I do. Where healthcare fails is in expectation management and giving physicians and nurses and whoever else is going to directly interface with that patient the the skill set and the the comfort in meeting a patient somewhere in between when there's a mismatched expect, expectation for too long. Like if a patient came to me and said, I want an MRI of my back right now. Well, I don't have the ability to get an MRI of your back instantaneously. Moreover, I don't think you need an MRI right now. So I could either basically be this gatekeeper that says, look, you want an MRI. I'm the guy who pushes the button for the MRI. It's not going to happen right. day and then run the risk of complaints or bad scores or bad likelihood to recommend whatever. Or I can pander and just say, screw it, I'm going to give you the MRI because that's what I think I'm supposed to do in order to buffer, you know, buff up my likelihood to recommend. Or I can do the right thing, which is actually get to the root of why do you think you need an MRI today? What is it that you're most concerned about? It might actually be that an MRI is not going to get her done for you anyway. What you might actually need is this instead, right? In the end, patients really want a few things. They want their time valued. They want to feel better. <laughs> want to feel like they understand what's going on and they don't want us to harm them. And that's not really all that hard to do. So um, they are customers, they are consumers and they are patients. And the term in which that you refer to them, I think 
is totally dictated by where you are within the ecosystem and what your motivations are and your job responsibilities, et cetera. But I don't feel that a patient is always right. And you know what? I also need to look in the mirror and have a gut check and say, I'm not always right. And, you know, getting more information from the patient may make something that I didn't want to give them actually something I'm more willing to give them once I've talked it out. A lot of patients actually have a very rational reason for why they want something. And whether it's they've talked to their Uncle Gary or they, you know, went right. on Google or whatever, a lot of times they have a rational reason. And it generally stems from they just want to feel better. And they think XYZ is what's going to get her done. I was at my doctor recently just for my annual checkup and, and he said, uh, do you mind getting a flu shot? I said, I don't know. Is it going to give me autism? And he just kind of looked at me for a second. Like he uh -huh. didn't know if I was serious or not. Yeah. <laughs> and then we, got into, then we got into an interesting conversation about how it is that um, certain ideas become part of the public consciousness mm -hmm. and how they get promoted. And, you know, as, as you said, you know, there's probably nothing as dear to us as our health and the health of our loved ones. And so it's this precious thing that of course we care very deeply about and are very interested in. And it, you know, as a result, it's also something that can be manipulated for a variety of ends, not all of them, um, you know, uh, laudable or you sure. know, positive. And oftentimes in direct opposition of something else, like of, all, of those 28 metrics that I'm responsible for, there's definitely ones that are in direct opposition of each other. And sometimes you have to decide which one you're going to do and which one you're going to take the ding on. But, you know, for, for too long, back to patient experience in general, the messaging to physicians was you have to dispense all the pain medicine in the world, all the Z-Packs in the world, all the MRIs in the world to give your patients what they want because they're right as customers. And then you're going to get great likelihood to recommend. But it was causing physicians to practice well out of the scope of what they you know, would consider to be their genuine self. And, you know, I'm not, I'm not in it to make my patient satisfied. I'm in it to engage my patient and do what's best for their well-being. And sometimes that means ordering a bunch of stuff. Sometimes that means having a long conversation. Sometimes that just means giving them a hug and telling them it's going to be okay. Um, and I'm just really committed to figuring out what it is that they think they need in the first place. So I know how to have those conversations um, where, where I think some physicians are still stuck in the, in the, I need to, do this to gain the system and get better scores. And there's one, one research article, uh, this was in the Journal of Internal Medicine, probably back in 2011, where it tried to de demonstrate that patient experience or a commitment to patient satisfaction, rather, was actually detrimental to a patient's health. No kidding. One thing that every physician in the world just clinged onto, like it was their, their life preserver. And what the article was trying to convey, and unfortunately it was a really poorly designed article in the first place, but what they were trying to convey is, Physicians are ordering more stuff that are actually detrimental to a patient's needs in order to pander and achieve better scores. And it's actually doing more harm than good. Um, and there's tons of, of studies that would demonstrate the, the opposite. But I don't believe for a single second that if I'm I don't need to make a patient happy or satisfied by ordering more stuff, by pandering, by doing anything other than my you know, genuine evidence based medicine. Um, where I hope more physicians will follow me and my lead and a lot of my colleagues. This is not to say that I'm doing this and I'm the only one. Tons and tons and tons of physicians actually do believe in this when given the opportunity to actually come out and say it. Um, I really make a point of trying to engage my patient in, in 
understanding their values and their fears and their concerns. So I can meet that expectation somewhere in the middle. If I'm not going to be able to give them what it is they, they came in thinking that they, need, they needed. And, and a lot of times I think that we, we, we put off this vibe of this adversarial or hierarchical, hierarchical, that's the right word. Yeah, um, that works. Um, relationship where patient comes in, customer comes in saying, I want X, Y, Z, and they have to get through me to get it. And basically have to convince me whether I'm going to click the button to get them the Z pack or the MRI or the whatever. Um, whereas I really try and frame it as a partnership of, I want you to feel better too. I want this as bad as you do, but we need to do this correctly. And, and what you think is going to help you actually is going to make you feel worse or maybe a detriment to your health. Let's try this instead. And here's why I think it's going to happen. And 80, 90% of the time, it's going to go effectively. 10% of the time, maybe not. Sometimes people are unreasonable and that's just how it goes. And that, that's a whole other discussion. Right. We're talking about some of the most complex things in the world with interpersonal communication is one of the most complex things in the world, just humans interacting with each other incredibly complex. And then you've got logistical operational design within healthcare, completely complex, plus the actual delivery of the actual medicine and diagnostics itself, super complex. And so now you've got three layers of mega complexity falling on top of each other. And sometimes things go better than, than other times. Do you ever wake up in the morning and go, why did I take this on given the levels of complexity that you're dealing with? I mean, there's easier ways of going about doing the work, right? So yes, um, I do. Um, there's days where I'm super gung-ho about improving the patient experience and the physician experience, the provider experience, the employee experience. And there's days where I feel very dejected and feel like I'm not moving the needle at all. And I think that that's actually emblematic of this is a marathon, not a sprint. And that in the realm of patient experience, like there is no finish line. This, this, this journey never ends because patients' needs are going to continually evolve. Technology is going to continually evolve. As long as there's humans on the planet that still need healthcare, it's going to continually move. And, and so I think that those who, who think, well, we're going to get our scores up and then we won the game and we're going to move on. Like it doesn't, it doesn't work. And, and I genuinely at my core believe that it's what is the right thing to do. It's, it's how I want to be as a human, let alone a physician. I want to be good to others. I want to connect with others. Um, and I, I want to understand what makes other people tick. And, and I, I want to, to help others get there as well. And so when I look at it from an ecosystem standpoint or an organizational culture standpoint, that can be super, super overwhelming. And what I instead try and do is really focus on two things that are my kind of true North. I have two true Norths. And the first is the experience that a patient has and their families in our healthcare system, our ERs, our clinics, et cetera, is the only 100% frequency event that occurs in healthcare. It happens, you know, more frequently than strokes, more frequently than heart attacks, more frequently than anything else. And so as a result, there's nothing more important than that. And, and I also think that in this world of so many moving parts, just within healthcare, but also just in life, the only thing that I can truly control is myself and my behavior and my attitude and who I choose to be when I step into the arena. Um, that energy, that vibe that I put off matters and wears off and rubs off on others. And if I'm going to be, you know, the, the tigger, right. The super energetic, positive uh, glasses overflowing guy, people <laughs> are going to follow suit. If yeah. I'm going to be the Eeyore and say that the place is burning down and the system sucks and have temper tantrums all the time, 
and treat my patients badly, it gives permission to everybody else within the healthcare team, you know, in my, in my treatment area, in my zone, permission to do the same. And so um, I try and really boil it down to working on the personal level and then working my way back out rather than feeling like I have to change the world because uh, I'm not going to be able to do that. It's 52 times higher than my pay grade. Uh, and <laughs> there's just so many things, you know, so many moving parts. So what, what can I control? I can control me. And then, you know, I can take on roles within my ED to make it a better place for everybody. And I can have some input in operations and, and things like that, as well as resident education, et cetera. And then that's how you start kind of, you know, blossoming out and starting to change minds and, and change others instead of just changing yourself. So I think the moral of the story here is be, be more of a Tigger and less of an Eeyore. Yeah, absolutely. And, and more Doc McStuffins and less Doc Martin. There you go. I mean, I would, I would say that's your podcast in a nutshell right there. I don't know why we wasted an hour and a half talking. You could have done this in five seconds. Yeah. I mean, well, like most things, you know, we, we like to uh, connect. It's all about the interpersonal. Right. It's all about the connection. It's all about those other C's that you mentioned that I don't recall what they are, but we have to do the social thing. And there the, you go. You know, the, the, the native Detroiter thing. You know, we're there Midwest. We're all very nice. Detroit for life. Detroit for life. Is that Tiger Stadium behind you? Um, so yeah, well at that point, yeah. So that's Tiger Stadium in 1968. Sure. Um, then that's Michigan. Michigan State. It's a big house. Got that. that. That's, but that's pre makeover before it got. And that's Olympia. And then yeah, that's the Olympia. Um, all the important things in my life, you know. I still retain my Detroit Craig because I recognized Olympia, the big house, and Tiger Stadium. Well, there from, you go. From Detroit old days. I know. Well, thanks a lot for chatting with us, Justin. Gary, really thank you so much for having me. Uh, I'm excited to see how it turns out. And I love the work you're doing. I'm definitely listening to every episode. So uh, keep doing the great work that you're doing. We want to thank Dr. Justin Bright of Henry Ford Health Systems for talking about patient and provider experiences at Henry Ford, as well as bringing that Midwestern sensibility and wit, which I thoroughly enjoyed revisiting after living in Boston now for 20 years. Not that there's anything wrong with Boston, but it's always good. It's always good to go home. It was great for me to talk with another Michigander, what we call ourselves, especially one with as much insight and passion for his work. You can see Justin by being admitted to the emergency room at Henry Ford Hospital in Detroit, or if you don't want to take that route, you can follow him on LinkedIn. Visit our show notes for a link to his LinkedIn account, as well as directions to the hospital. You can't say we never gave you options, right? That's right. Um, so as always, you can communicate with us at feedback at experiencexdesign.com. That is feedback at experiencexdesign. And we love hearing from folks and enjoy having your feedback. It lets us know what kind of episodes you want to hear, who'd you like us to interview next, and what kind of experiences or topics are on our minds or your minds. So let us know, and we are happy to find and build the community together. If you want to subscribe and join the EXD community, you can head on over to our website at experiencexdesign.com to stay on top of all the news, as well as check out our new LinkedIn group, where we have active discussions, conversations, and interesting ideas floating about, including whether or not we're going to get a magician on the show. I'm still hopeful. There, there has been talk about the magician. We've still got to work on that. So we're looking for a magical experience. Always. So thanks for joining us once again. Uh, it's been great to hear from Justin. Thank you for your time. And we will see everybody next week. Bye.